Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to the Federalist Society's virtual event. This afternoon, July 28th, we discuss the Congressional Oversight and Investigations, New Developments and Outlook for the 117th Congress. My name is Evelyn Hildebrand, and I'm an Associate Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Today, we are fortunate to have with us a very distinguished panel, which we're really pleased to welcome this afternoon. I'll introduce our moderator, Mr. Michael Bopp, who will then introduce our panelists. Michael Bopp is a partner at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher LLP, where he is the chair of the Public Policy Practice Group and a member of the firm's White Collar Defense and Investigations and Crisis Management Practice Groups. He also chairs the firm's Congressional Investigations Subgroup, and he also chairs the firm's Financial Markets Crisis Group. And much more could be said by way of introduction, but I will leave it at that. And we're very pleased he's agreed to moderate this afternoon. After our speakers give their opening remarks, time permitting, we will try to take some audience questions. If you do have a question, please enter it into the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. And time permitting, we'll try to address questions. Uh, With that, thank you for being with us today. Michael, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, and thanks to everyone for joining us today. Um, I think what, what we're going to try to do is make this uh, interactive amongst us and, uh, and and with the audience, too. Obviously, if you have questions, as noted, please enter them into the Q&A um, uh, function, and then we will, we, we will try to address them. So the format we're going to follow today, we have a slide deck, um, and, and uh, we're going to sort of go through some of the building blocks of congressional oversight and investigations, and then talk about some of the real pressing and, and most interesting, we think, issues um, facing the 117th Congress and, and, and within the congressional investigations. But let me start by introducing our uh, very distinguished panel will go in alphabetical order. First, um, Christopher Armstrong, who is a partner at Holland and Knight, uh, former chief oversight counsel on the Senate Finance Committee under under Chairman Orrin Hatch, and formerly uh, worked for Senator Chuck Grassley uh, and was an oversight counsel to the House Ways and Means Committee as well. Um, You're going to hear a recurring theme here. All of us um, worked for, for many, many years up on the Hill. Um, and uh, two of us are still on the Hill, uh, and the others are, are now out in uh, private practice. Um, then Ashley Callen. Ashley is the Deputy Staff Director at the House Oversight and Reform Committee. Uh, over the course of her 22 years in government, she has worked at the Agriculture Committee, the Science, Space, and Technology Committee, and the Judiciary Committee. And this is her second term on the Oversight Committee. Next, uh, we have Dan Gashorn. Dan is the Chief Investigative Counsel for Chairman Wyden of the Senate Finance Committee uh, with oversight jurisdiction of tax, trade, Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Uh, Prior to becoming Chief Investigative Counsel, uh, Dan was a Senior Counsel for the Finance Committee, uh, focusing on tax and money laundering issues. This ties into uh, his work for Chairman uh, Carl Levin on the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. Uh, where he also worked on international tax investigations uh, and a comprehensive investigation of the 2008 financial crisis, which many of us remember well. Uh, and then Allison Murphy, 
Uh, Allison is a partner at Kirkland and Ellis and has held positions related to congressional investigations across the government, including as counsel to the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, associate counsel at the White House under President Obama, and most recently as chief oversight counsel to the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis under Chairman uh, Jim Clyburn. And she started her career at Wilmer Hale. So getting started, um, we are going to turn to the slide deck and we will take turns talking about the slides um, and, uh, and, and having a conversation about them. So let's start with slide two, Chris. There, thank you, Michael. So I think the most important place to start here is just with the fact that you know, oversight or investigations are not words that actually appear in Article 1 at all. Um, but at the you know, earliest, you know, I mean, the earliest days of the Republic, it was seen as a, as a implicit part of kind of Article 1 powers. So if you look at the sort of, sort of the broad range of kind of Article, you know, 1, if it's the power you know, to legislate, if it's the power of the the purse, if it's the power to kind of, you know, you know, organize the executive, if it's the power to, to, to impeach, each of those powers cannot be carried out without a power of oversight, a power to discover, you know, you know, what's actually happening out there. If, if it's in the, you know, executive or orbits out in kind of the public at large. Um, so you can't do those things without having oversight. That's why it was always seen as just a part of kind of inherent article one powers. A uh, flip side to that though, is if the power to conduct oversight investigations only exists for the purpose of carrying out those other powers, it has to be in that purpose. And so if it's, if it's about legislation, it has to have a, you know, a valid legislative, you know, you know, a purpose. Congress can't just kind of go out and explore things that aren't, you know, aren't, aren't all actually related to its other powers. And we'll kind of explore, you know, uh, you know, a bit, you know, you know, about exactly what that means later on. But I'll turn it over to the next slide. Chris, Allison. Thanks, Chris. So as we think about all the reasons that there are congressional investigations, um, as Chris said, there's you know, significant authority for Congress to do it. So there can be a lot of different reasons that any given committee may decide to initiate an inquiry. Um, one big one is looking at potential misconduct. Um, I like to think about investigations sometimes as focused on a crisis or something that has happened. Um, and then there's a lot of investigations that oftentimes look at policy issues. But if there is an event that has happened, that's been in the press, that's been in the news, it's had serious consequences, sometimes there may be misconduct at the heart of that. And Congress is looking to see if there was you know, some type of more serious wrongdoing at the heart of that. Um, related to that is looking at you know, accountability. Maybe there isn't wrongdoing, but an event has happened and somebody has to say the buck stops here. Um, one example when I was with the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations was when J.P. Morgan Chase engaged in synthetic credit derivatives trades that led to a loss of $6 billion in its own money. They were called the whale trades because they were so big in 2012. 
And the issue was, you know, who is accountable for this? And the, you know, somewhere within the company, there was a reckoning about where responsibility should lie. And that investigation looked at internal risk control but also included an external review of what should, should there be external risk controls? And Congress decided that, you know, that should lead to the Volcker rule. So that's another reason for congressional investigations. And, and then the other next category is really thinking about, you know, the policy preferences or a need for legislation that an investigation can drive support for creating. Um, certainly the notion of an investigation that culminates in a hearing is very public and creates an event where you may have public pressure to um, advance a certain cause. For example, as um, you know, Michael referenced at the beginning, PSI did an inquiry into the 2008 financial crisis. There was four hearings, uh, thousands of pages of report and all of that really led to, um, you know, a break in the dam of a, of, you know, dysfunction that led to the Dodd-Frank rule uh, law and, and associated rules. And that um, public pressure led to, um, you know, breaking that log jam, certainly as one senator credited PSI in his book. So sometimes Congress is looking to fill the gap and, you know, drive some energy towards accomplishing um, what it would like to do. And they can use that not just to create an opening, but to certainly bolster their own position or, you know, some a part of their agenda. Um, one thing I'd like to add to this slide is thinking about how, uh, you know, one reason for investigations too can be to change executive branch conduct or conduct of a regulator. And I think that's something we've seen a lot this year and we'll probably see a lot more going on in the next couple of years at least. Certainly crises like Enron, for example, you had a lot a lot of hearings that exposed oversight gaps. And that led to, um, for example, at FERC, um, creating a huge enforcement section of 50 people where none existed before. And now you see folks both on the Republican and Democratic side writing to, for example, the SEC, asking the SEC in letters, uh, what, is it, so what are its authorities for regulation and enforcement on cryptocurrency? or saying, uh, do you really have the authorities to be doing anything more on disclosure enforcement changes about uh, ESGs? So I think that congressional investigations that lead towards executive branch uh, and regulator changes are an important part of the analysis, especially for private companies looking at the, the horizon over the next few, uh, few years. Allison, and, and, and let me ask you and the whole panel, do you think? Do you feel like, um, or in your experience, does Congress, congressional committees, tend to uh, take up subjects, particularly when they're investigating you know, private sector entities, take up subjects where they don't feel like there's been enough executive branch attention, or is it really the opposite that Congress, that the executive branch calls attention to an issue and then Congress decides to pick it up? What do, what, what do you what do you think in your experience? I think it's both, but but I'd like to hear from some other folks too. Yeah, I, I think I think both is is it's kind of the easy answer, but but is the real one as well. You know, sometimes your oversight, the oversight, especially where you're looking at 
particular policy issues. You know, those you know, for folks in the majority or even the minority, you're working at kind of the, you're looking at the issues of the day, and those are typically directed by the administration. For for more kind of pure investigations, as Allison described, an event has happened. You know, those those don't follow any rhyme or reason. Um, those are just you know, kind of that's what's in the news and may or may not be driven by the administration. But as far as oversight of, you know, specific policy issues, I think I think a lot of times that that's driven by the, the administration. Any other thoughts on that question? If not, we can. No, all I would add to that is that if, if, if you know, a, you know, oil well explosion happens, right, or kind of airbags are, airbags are, are kind of exploding all of a sudden. Congress is able to act quickly in terms of oversight, and so often that can have the effect of then, of then, of then kind of like driving up, you know, a executive action as well. I think. All good points. Okay, um, moving on to the next slide. I think Dan, you're next. Sure. So this slide discusses some of the tools uh, Congress uses to conduct their investigations. And I think, you know, as, as context to the to to this slide, it's important to, to understand that the vast majority of congressional investigations and oversight are conducted on a, a voluntary basis. Um, you know, the Congress asks questions to you know, private parties, private companies or the administration. Uh, they get answers, uh, and it's all it's all kind of worked out on a voluntary basis. So, kind of with that, and especially so with that important consideration, and the fact that usually the parties involved in the investigations are you know want to be seen as cooperating. You know, these tools are 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 kind of ways to to kind of shape that cooperation and uh, and make sure things proceed smoothly. Right. So, you know, the basic the basic tool for congressional investigators is the request for information, either an informal email from staff or a letter uh, from a member of Congress. Again, you know, when we're talking about kind of tools that you know, may lead to a voluntary basis, kind of an unwritten tool here is a press release. Um, you know, is this request for information public or non-public? You know, are you using pressure on um, the party that's being investigated, the administration or otherwise, or are you, um, you know, trying to have a, a more, you know, fluid uh, dialogue with, with the party that's, that's subject to the investigation? Um, interviews and depositions are another important, important uh, tool, particularly, you know, the informal interview. Um, folks, you know, are often, you know, you know, give their time to Congress on a voluntary basis uh, and make sure their side of the story is heard on whatever investigation you're looking at. You know, these these hearing, these um, requests for information and interviews, you know, tend to roll up and most of the time the final product is a hearing or a report, uh, which, you know, brings, brings the findings to light uh, and, you know, makes next steps for policy changes um, that may result from a, from a hearing. Subpoenas, um, you know, are something that you maybe you hear about more often if you're not seeped in the everyday uh, of congressional investigations. Um, but again, this is a tool that you know to be is not always even used to compel uh, cooperation. The subpoenas, in my experience, have have largely been used to kind of work around legal issues. Um, you know, a party wants to cooperate with a subpoena, but contractual issues, uh, Bank Secrecy Act, et cetera, you know, makes it impossible to do so without. 
uh, a subpoena uh, and one is provided on that basis. You know, rarely are subpoenas issued because a party just will not cooperate, although it, it does happen and those cases are, you know, kind of the exception that proves the rule. Uh, and then finally, uh, another tool is referral to executive branch. So at the conclusion generally of any hearing uh, report or investigation, Congress may refer um, misconduct if it's uncovered to the executive branch for prosecution or false statements or there are other or other misactions by the by the party at issue. Um, that's not always always the case and is not necessarily a goal of any particular particular investigation. It's to you know to come across criminal criminal misconduct, but it does happen, and it is um, and it is often an outcome of these of these investigations. And how how often and, and others how often does that happen? How often is a referral made? And and do committees vary in terms of uh, whether they make a referral public or not? I mean, I've seen public and you know non-public re referrals made. I think that you're right, Michael. I think there is a lot of variance among different committees and how they act. And even in the format of the referral, I've seen some referrals that are very top line, a couple sentences have a look at XYZ and really put the onus on the executive branch to do the work on the issue, especially if an investigation's already been done and the conclusions are pretty obvious. Um, I've seen other ones where letters go through all the reasons that they think the investigation warrants a referral and, and the likely conclusion. So I think there's a, you're right, there's a real spectrum there. And it would be interesting to hear other folks too on just what proportion of the referrals that are public, um, you know, how many we don't see that are non-public. Yeah, so I would just comment, you know, in the instances where I've been involved with referrals, both on the Hill and off the Hill, you know, they take, a, as has already been stated, the, there's a wide range. There's everything from telling the IRS or like, like, you know, a justice to examine this issue. And then there are very specific ones about, about, uh, see, especially when it's lying to uh, Congress. And that's where I've, in my time on the Hill, where I interacted with referrals, you know, most often. And that's, that's an issue that kind of Congress will always take, Give a hard look at if that's if if uh, if that's happened. Yeah, and I'd say that, I mean, there's, those are that that referrals for lying to Congress often bring parties together too. I, you don't see it that often, but when yeah. it does happen, it happens. Um, it's an affront to the to the, to the you know the whole Congress the committee. Um, okay, let's move to the next slide, uh, Ashley. Thanks, Michael. Um, so I think as Dan laid out nicely, um, usually a subpoena is not um, the starting point for a dialogue with any individual or entity. But sometimes I've seen uh, chairmen start with a subpoena, but most of the time there's a robust back and forth about um, a narrowing or broadening or targeting discussion so that Congress can get what Congress wants. Um, all of um, the chairs have um, authority to issue subpoenas um, unilaterally. Um, I think the language is something like in consultation with um, the ranking um, member, uh, and that takes on different forms depending upon the committee. 
committees also vary. Some have to vote. I think the Senate has different rules um, that require votes. In the House, um, it's usually unilateral with notice um, to the other side. And um, in the last Congress, some chairs actually agreed um, to take a vote, um, but I don't think we do that anymore. Um, we don't vote on subpoenas in the House, um, but that's just a committee to committee practice. So you really have to sort of be talking to staff and you know understand um, what each committee, how they operate. And as Dan mentioned, subpoenas can be friendly um, to get around contractual issues, um, NDAs and things like that. C different committees make them public. Sometimes they keep them private. Um, anytime um, my boss has been um, about to you know, authorize a subpoena, um, you know, the, the question that we always try to ask is, is this something we're willing to enforce? And I think a few slides from now we get into enforcement, um, but that's always something that should be um, in the chair's calculus um, when they are issuing a subpoena. I think that's about it. Thanks, Ashley. So one question is, what for the panel, how do you think the 50-50 Senate and essentially except except if you're chair of PSI, um, you know, you essentially need a Republican, either the ranking member to consent to issuing a subpoena or some republic some Republican to cross the aisle and agree to a subpoena. How how do you think that has changed investigations in the Senate, if at all? Well, I'd say, you know. In a large part, in the Senate, it has you know the, the major oversight and investigation efforts have been conducted on a bipartisan basis, um, and so there's always kind of been buy-in from the other party, and and so I, I think it, it does change things a little. Um, you know, there there the majority can't use the threat of you know the the simple threat of we'll just take this to a vote and my side will vote for it even if yours doesn't, um, but. You know, I, I think at least you know in my history on the Senate, there's been a lot of a lot of effort to to investigate things. At least there's at least some bipartisan buy-in. You know, you can you know work together to agree on the facts, if but maybe not the solutions uh, after you discover those facts. So I, I think it changes thing a little, but but overall not much. I'm not sure my, our investigative agenda would be different if we had you know, 60 seats, or if we were in the minority, I think, you know, the, the work I'd be pursuing would be, be largely the same. Yeah, I think that's right as well. I would add to that, you know, part of the reason it hasn't changed a whole lot is that, you know, the subpoena is almost never actually necessary, at least nine times out of, out of uh, 10. And so it's not going to have that much of a effect on, on kind of, you know, whatever side happens or not. Um, and again, I think he's, I think Dan's exactly right. So, uh, investigations, especially you know, large ones in the Senate tend to be, I mean, often bipart. And so it has, has kind of, you know, less of an impact there as well, I think. You know, it, it, three of us on the committee, and I, we, we can name names, it's uh, uh, Dan and Allison and, and myself. We all worked on PSI and, and other committees and and I think as Ashley alluded to, you know, some committees start with a letter, some committees 
or at least PSI, tends to, has traditionally tended to start with a subpoena. What do you, what do you see as sort of the strategic reasons why a committee might start with a subpoena instead of a letter or vice versa? So I'll just add to that. I mean, I've, I, I always like to, to uh, start, you know, uh, you know, with a letter, you know, I, I always thought the, you know, most kind of powerful subpoena is the, is the kind of unissued one, right? It's actually on the, the table, it's threatened and it's not issued. After you issue a subpoena, I think the calculus about compliance can often actually actually get worse. And so that's I I always like to have it in my back pocket. Although although it's not how I led, you know, you know, the gate with the investigation. I think what's interesting about the dynamic on PSI is the general kind of secrecy in which the committee conducts its work. There are, there are strong rules on PSI protecting information that's collected unless and until there's a hearing or a report um, that other committees on the Senate don't have. So, you know, when I was talking about uh, tools earlier, I mentioned one of the kind of unwritten tools is the press release, where if a, if a company or an entity or the administration is not cooperating, you know, you can use the press uh, to, to create pressure for cooperation. Um, you know, that whole dynamic doesn't exist on PSI. And, you know, the, the Chris's comment about the, the threat of the unissued subpoena, uh, that dynamic is, is much different on PSI as well. Um, because if you issue a subpoena to a company and then, you know, the investigation goes nowhere, the, you know, the company, no, no one, no one will ever know. The company doesn't have that, that risk of, of, of the negative press that they would if a subpoena is issued from another committee of the Congress. So, you know, at least in the, the work, um, you know, I, I was involved in on PSI to the extent we, I wouldn't say we really ever started with a subpoena, but to the extent we did use them a little more liberally, it was largely because, you know, we're looking at financial institutions where Bank Secrecy Act implications, you know, it just it made sense to just go to a subpoena early uh, and, and you know, the, we it wasn't it really necessarily adversarial. It was just this is what we want. We know we're going to need a subpoena to get it, so let's just get this over with. Um, so it's just there's a very different dynamic on PSI versus how you conduct investigations at, a, at another another committee. Any other thoughts? Yeah, I'll jump in real quick. I mean, I was talking to somebody today and. It, everything is voluntary until you issue a subpoena. So you're kind of hoping that people are good citizens and want to help Congress, right? Or if it's a company, obviously they have, you know, an interest in upholding their good reputation. But, you know, a lot of, there is a case that says every citizen is obligated to assist Congress, um, essentially. And, but not everyone knows that, you know, and if you're, you know, if you're down on your luck, you may not be able to afford to hire an attorney or whatever you need to comply um, with voluntary requests. And so sometimes you have to sort of move to, you know, it's you're really just cajoling people and hoping that they want to cooperate and be responsive and helpful until you um, issue the subpoena. So I think, you know, some some instances you have better luck than others. Certainly is a different calculus um, from the perspective of the recipient. Um, okay, let's talk just for a minute about congressional contempt. <clears throat> there are three kinds, 
uh, inherent contempt is the one that you may have heard of, but it's you've never actually seen it used. Uh, and that's because it hasn't been used since 1935. It's literally finding the contemnor, locking the contemnor up in, in the Capitol. I uh, just, you know, we're putting them under, under house arrest. Um, criminal and civil contempt. Uh, you know, with respect to criminal contempt, the real issue there is it's it's difficult to use because where you see contempt mostly used is when Congress is uh, ends up issuing a subpoena to an executive branch entity or person. And the thing is, for criminal contempt, you need the Department of Justice to actually um, to actually bring the contempt action, the criminal action against uh, the, the party who is in contempt. Um, and since the Department of Justice is of the same um, political party as the executive branch official being held in contempt by Congress, uh, and since the Justice Department has taken the position that um, it, 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 is, it is at their discretion whether or not to bring these actions, uh, you don't see a lot of these actions brought. Civil contempt, something we're going to talk about a little bit more um uh in, in a little bit it's it's there's some interesting new case law relating to civil contempt uh you see it more often um you've seen it at psi i'll move to the next slide um with backpage.com and remarkably quick fashion uh it's the psi brought a contempt action or or initiated a civil contempt truly really an enforcement proceeding against backpage and in the course of 17 months you went to issuance of the subpoena uh, to um, uh, compliance with the subpoena through a contempt process. And I'll just note as well on the next slide, by contrast, uh, in Fast and Furious, which um, I think a number of folks are probably folks are, are generally familiar with, um, this was both a House and a Senate investigation um, uh, relating to um, drug running and, and weapons uh, and allegations of, uh, of, of weapons running as well. And the issue happened to be that, you know, the House thought, the House Committee Oversight Reform believed that uh, the Department of Justice was withholding information and not complying with the subpoena. That process, in contrast, took eight years. And it, for, to, to a large degree, it took so long because when you're dealing with a government entity, that government entity has both executive privilege and the deliberative process privilege to assert, uh, which was asserted, and you had some very bad case law from the perspective of Congress made in that case, fortunately it was ultimately vacated. But this shows, um, I think first and foremost, the contempt process is a difficult and, 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 and cumbersome tool but as CSI showed with Backpage, it, it can be used. So why, I mean, let me just ask uh, for comments from the, uh, from, from the panelists, but also maybe we could talk a little bit about why so few subpoenas end up being enforced through the contempt process. So I'll just on point one, um, you know, I think the big difference here is that it, it was, you know, you know, it, uh, you know, Backpage was a, it was a private, you know, party that had essentially, you know, no support on the Hill um, versus the, you know, executive, you know, branch in a split Congress with the power of the, of the DOJ behind it. And so I think that's just, you know, part of the 
timeline here, and it shows us how if Congress is actually acting as one, right, or at least one house of it, it can act, you know, awfully quickly. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just pause there. I think that's right. I think Michael identified um, the problem. I mean, when you read these cases, courts really struggle with, um, you know, how to solve issues between co-equal branches and they, um, and, you know, you add in executive privilege and deliberative process, which we, you know, the house argues we don't recognize. And then common law privileges, these are all sort of, you know, issue, the executive branch tries to assert all the common law privileges too, um, oftentimes. So I think that's, I think that's where the courts really struggle. And I think you're right when, um, when the Republicans and Democrats are speaking, um, with one voice, I think against, you know, a private party where they've checked all the, um, the boxes, you know, there's a valid legislative purpose and all the boxes are checked. Um, I think it's much easier. Um, for the courts. And so I think that's the calculus that any anyone on the Hill is thinking of when they consider having to go to contempt proceedings to enforce a subpoena. You know, am I able to check those boxes of avoiding executive branch privileges, uh, establishing, you know, bipartisan support, dealing with the time frame? I mean, even 17 months is a long time in the course of a congressional investigation um, to get the information, especially where I was recently on the House side. And then to be able to make use of it in any sort of meaningful time frame. Um, members also, you know, it's tough to relinquish control over a big piece of your investigation to you know, other third parties by going through this process with a potentially uncertain um, endgame. So the information's really got to be worth it. And I think, you know, like Ashley mentioned, you really have to check a lot of boxes to, to get to a good result. Okay. Um, so let's talk for a minute about congressional investigation defenses. And, you know, before we jump into the defenses themselves, um, let me just ask, uh, all of you have run investigations, um, many, many investigations up on the Hill. Which of these defenses do you hear from you know, witnesses and individuals that are being uh, and entities being investigated? Which ones do you hear the most frequently? I recall privilege being the most frequently invoked privileges, not to say that I haven't heard the others, but I think that there's more of a framework for dealing with that than there is on legislative purpose, for example. Certainly the Fifth Amendment, there's a pretty clear you know, set of pathways and forks in the road on that, but it, it's not gonna come up, I think, in as many, um, certainly as in, um, across the board as I think privilege has. I have a bit of a different experience because um, if, you, if you haven't worked at oversight and you've tried to conduct robust oversight at a different committee, meaning like if, you know, the oversight committee has um, tools baked into the house rules that help them be aggressive uh, in their oversight. Uh, for To be specific, rule 10 says that the oversight committee has plenary jurisdiction to conduct any investigation on any matter at any time. Um, and the other committees um, are really, um, relegated to their rule 10 jurisdiction. So um, it's, a you know, and if you want to sort of get into novel areas, um, it makes it a little more challenging. So I have had, um, had to argue 
pertinence and valid legislative purpose and that it was authorized. And I've had to make all those arguments to people. And then I've also, um, in one particular investigation many years ago um, for a boss who's now retired, encountered a First Amendment defense that I think was um, was a good one. Um, and so I've so I've dealt with those two, the um, the purple and the orange one. And I think that I'm a, I'm actually taking off my Capitol Hill staffer hat. I am a huge proponent of the First Amendment defense. And I think we're seeing more and more questions from Congress that um, really go to the heart of people's First Amendment prerogatives. Thanks, Ashley. Other thoughts? Yeah, I'll just add, I mean, I easily the one here I saw most often was you know, attorney-client privilege and work product. Um, and those are often just handled as kind of do not, you know, I mean, routine court that's almost always respected. Right. The response, I'm not trying to call it a defense, but the response I heard, I mean, I hear and I speak every day are issues about requests of, you know, of being kind of, um, you know, overbroad or that the request timeline is actually too fast. And it just kind of takes it, it takes a long time to actually, you know, collect these records or you're asking for X, Y and Z. And I think all you really have to have is Y. And we have that conversation. And so I think that's, you know, I mean, that's a daily conversation I think we have in kind of our worlds. And I'll add to just to, to kind of close the loop here. I, you know, I've also had a fair amount of experience with the Fifth Amendment um, defenses being used. Um, and those are, these from, from my perspective on the Hill, are, are kind of tricky to work through. Um, you know, certainly if, if someone wants to, you know, assert a fifth amendment privilege, they can do that, but then you have to work through issues of, you know, when is the best time for that to happen? Um, you know, it can, are you going to, you know, let them assert their fifth amendment privilege in kind of in a private in an interview and, and be done with it? Or do you want that to take place at a hearing? Um, and you know, and then is the person kind of properly asserting, uh, the fifth amendment or have they waived it through some other actions? Uh, the, that they, they've taken possibly in the same statement. So, um, so, so, so that is maybe less frequent, um, but does come up and is, is a very tricky one to work through. You know, it's, it's interesting bringing up the Fifth Amendment because that is one that you see occasionally, obviously, in the context of a hearing. And so you're aware that, you know, someone has asserted the Fifth Amendment, Martin Shkreli, before your committee, Ashley. Um, and, you know, and, and, and so it's visible. It's not so visible when some of these other um, defenses are raised. And what is, is also not really apparent, particularly when um, folks like or may not be per particularly familiar with congressional investigations and they approach investigations from a mindset of, okay, it's litigation. Why don't we go quash the subpoena, right? And, well, you know, you can't because you don't have standing to quash the subpoena. We'll get into that in a minute. Um, but if it's only, you know, if a contempt action, if, if somebody doesn't comply with the subpoena, it goes into contempt, you're in a civil contempt action or a criminal contempt action, and you raise these defenses, one or more of these defenses as a defense against the contempt action. And just uh, as a point of reference, 
um, the last time committee jurisdiction was used successfully uh, to, uh, in a contempt to reverse a contempt conviction was 1966. Uh, in a case that went to the U.S. Supreme Court, the First Amendment has never been relied on by a court to reverse a criminal contempt conviction, nor has the Fourth Amendment. So these are, uh, I agree, uh, I completely agree with what, with what our panel has said about, you know, these, the, 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 it's not that these defenses don't have merit, it's that there's no standing to raise them in the context of shutting down or trying to stop a congressional investigation until you get into a contempt proceeding. Okay, that so that leads us to Trump versus Mazars. Um, one of the real sort of cutting edge issues on congressional investigations. You know, what does the Mazars decision, uh, Supreme Court decision, mean for congressional investigations? And before I open it up for comments, um, let me just note, just to remind folks, the Mazars is just is the uh, uh, is is a shorthand for the case for. Cases involving that were consolidated involving subpoenas for the president's financial records. These subpoenas were issued to banks, to uh, the president's um, accounting firm, um, and 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 the 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 president, not the president as the president, but that the the, the uh, um, entities affiliated with the president's businesses challenged these subpoenas. They sought to quash the subpoenas. Uh, and they did so in a way that avoided um, the standing problem because they did so by essentially suing or filing an action against the entity that received the subpoena. So Mazars receives a subpoena for the president's accounting financial records. The president's organization, the Trump organization, sued Mazars to enjoin it from producing those documents. And that's what led to uh, the Mazars decision. And then and as the middle bullet indicates um, in a majority decision, and it was a seven justice majority, the chief justice acknowledged that Congress has the power to obtain information, but held that congressional subpoenas are valid only if they serve a valid legislative purpose, not intended for law enforcement purposes. And there's there's discussion in the um, in the Mazars case that suggests that going forward there may be more scrutiny of the legislative purpose requirement that, that Chris talked about at the beginning of our of, of this session, uh, which is a requirement for uh, a congressional investigation uh, to be authorized. Uh, the other piece of Mazars that I think is very interesting is that it questions it doesn't question it 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 sort of validates that uh, in dicta, that common law privileges apply to congressional investigations. So interesting, interested to hear from the panel, you know, what practical effects, any comments on Mazars, but what practical effects do you think Mazars might have on congressional investigations? I'll just add, you know, I haven't encountered this directly yet, but I think the most likely outcome in terms of the, the quote about legislation uh, later purpose is that Congress will be a lot you know more cautious you know about actually making a record on that um, because I, I can't imagine and this is you know of course only me I can't imagine this court desiring to be in the the business of like telling telling uh, Congress like what is or is not an actual legislative purpose and so I would see I I would kind of expect the result of that to be just Congress is kind of is kind of like, you know, 
is more kind of like cautious about how it actually actually makes that record about its legislative intent or purposes. Yeah, I think something we haven't talked about, um, which I think um, is negotiations and accommodations. Um, There's some DC um, Court of Appeals, I believe, cases that um, require, you know, the 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 executive branch and the legislative branch to engage in negotiations and accommodations. And I think Congress, I think as a result of Mazars has more of a duty to engage in those. And, you know, I think one of the things that I sort of keep in the back of my mind is, okay, we want the information. We have to get the information as it comes to us. We don't get to sort of dictate the way it comes to us necessarily. Sometimes we do, but you have to engage in that back and forth. And I think, like Chris said, we have to be documenting it and being able to support enforcement of our subpoenas. Um, I mean, I think there's a four-part test now articulated in the case, and I think we have to be mindful of that um, work, you know, in working on the Hill. I have encountered this, at least in the privilege space. And but practically the way that this works out is really the accommodations process. And that has been certainly how Congress vis-a-vis the executive branch and is supposed to negotiate subpoenas um, in order. And it means that both parties have to talk about what their interest is and being mindful of privileges, get the information that Congress needs. So it, 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 I don't think it changes the day-to-day a ton because Congress has generally been fairly respectful of attorney-client privileges and does go through that accommodations process through a process of narrowing the request and triaging and sequencing certain buckets or not, um, thinking about other ways to present the information, whether it's documents themselves or whether the information is elicited and provided in a way that's sort of shorn of the privileges. So it, it is part of the conversation, but it has not, from what at least I've seen at first, made a big difference in changing the barometer on, on how privilege is treated. All good points. Uh, one other, just one other aspect of Mazars, I think this is a fascinating case and probably one of the most significant ones in the congressional area, congressional investigations area in, in decades. Um, so it also represents the first time that the Supreme Court has ruled in favor of a collateral attack on a congressional subpoena by a party seeking to enjoy enjoin compliance by the target of the subpoena. So for example, going forward, if a congressional committee were to subpoena bank records of a company, the company could conceivably sue the, <coughs> sue the bank to enjoin compliance. <coughs> it obviously would have to have some basis to do so. But how much of, of an effect do you think this holding might have on congressional investigations. Well, I think one thing we haven't talked about this, this, these subpoenas were very broad in this case. It didn't just ask for the president's financial information. It asked for his 13 year old son's financial information, his wife, his grown children's financial information. So it was very broad. And the basis for that was, oh, we need to see how other presidential families are going to, um, you know, navigate taxes and financial things going forward. And so it was very broad in this case. And so I think 
I think the court was seeking to find a way to narrow or, you know, require Congress to sort of be more mindful of the depth and breadth of their requests. So I think, I, th- I think, I don't want to say it's had a chilling effect because that certainly hasn't happened, but I do think it's making people engage more, document more, track and, you know, sort of think through things a bit more. My, you know, I, I, I maybe I haven't I've looked at this text in, in, uh, in a little while. And so maybe I'm, I'm, I don't remember, I'm not remembering this exactly right. But my takeaway from Mazars was, you know, the, the collateral attack issue was very fact specific, you know, and it was because it was the president who had a job to do of being the president. In uh, a lot of other instances where you're issuing a subpoena to a bank for someone else's tax records, you know, that argument doesn't exist and, and the facts just won't match up. So I think, you know, this is the, the, the broadly speaking, Mazars, I think, really just reaffirmed, you know, that the, the framework of congressional oversight we've all been working under and carved out some very, very narrow um, you know, put some very narrow limits on it, you, you know, applying to just the president and just the investigation at issue, which maybe we'll see again soon, maybe we won't. Um, but um, I, I think, you know, broadly speaking, you know, the, this, this ruling doesn't, doesn't really change a lot. It, it just reaffirms uh, for the most part how, how the vast majority of congressional investigations are already conducted. Yeah, the only, I, I think that's largely right. The only part where I would kind of hesitate on that is, you know, does the addicta, you know, uh, you know, by the chief justice inspire other, other kind of targets to kind of, you know, explore those areas in like, in like a challenge request, but it would take an extremely particular, you know, a type of a target to actually do that or have that appetite. All, all excellent comments. I do think that, you know, it's an open issue how broad this language actually will in practice end up being and whether, you know, there will be you know, private parties that try to pick up on some of the themes and 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 try to use them and congressional investigations, we'll, we'll just have to see. Um, I know we're running short here. So attorney client privilege, we've already talked about um, and work product. Uh, so let's talk about McGann just for a minute or two. Um, and just to remind folks, this was part of the impeachment inquiry. Um, House Judiciary Committee issued a subpoena to Don McGahn, former White House counsel, uh, to testify. McGahn refused to appear. Committee filed suit to enforce its subpoena. District court rules committee had standing, cause of action to enforce, rejected the claim of absolute immunity. <clears throat> then a panel, the DC Circuit, said Congress didn't have standing to enforce. Then the en banc, TC Circuit reverses, sends the case back to the original panel, which found that the House lacks a valid cause of action to seek judicial enforcement of subpoena. Highly, just, you know, potentially very um, significant decision by the en banc DC Circuit, by the way, authored by Tom Griffith, the former uh, Senate, Senate counsel. But then the en banc DC Circuit agreed to rehear the case. But prior to that, House Democrats and the Biden administration settled the case and is seeking to vacate the panel decision. 
But the interesting part about this, or there are a number of interesting pieces, but is this idea that Congress um, hasn't authorized the House to file suit in federal court to enforce congressional subpoenas. What do you think if that if if that is if that uh, rationale is picked up on by other courts, how would that impact congressional investigations? Any thoughts on that one? I think, you know, in, in part, hopefully it's, you know, vacated, won't be picked up, but there there has been some, you know, thinking that, you know, if, if the House didn't have any effective ability to enforce the subpoenas and would have to pass a law or a statute in order to provide standing, um, uh, that would have to be signed by the president. Uh, that would be a very difficult thing to do, particularly if it were the executive branch, once again, that were the subpoenaed party that was being held in contempt. All I would add to that, Michael, is that I think it's important to recall that, you know, the vast, vast majority of, of targets of investigation, you know, don't want the PR, right? You know, don't want more letters, don't want, you know, hearings. And so it would take such a unique circumstance you know what to actually raise that challenge i think but um you know obviously it'd be interesting to watch let's just talk for a minute about virtual hearings here to stay do we like them do we not like them what is what does everyone think i do think it provides um well on the so on the pros, I'll start with a pro. I think that's the way you're supposed to do things. Um, it allows people, witnesses from all across America, to not have to pay for a flight to come to DC yeah. to testify before Congress, right? But a big con is it's really not accessible to the public. I mean, we look and see how many people are watching the live stream, and it's a fraction of what I think would be watching if people were there in person. If, um, you know, we ha yeah, if we had an audience, if we had press, if we had, you know, all the things that we had pre-COVID. Um, so I hope that we can get back to that, but maybe retain that element to allow people to come and testify virtually and not have to spend the money to fly to D.C. I think that's right. All I would add to that is hearings as a kind of oversight oversight tool were, you know, already a really, really bad oversight tool. Uh, this makes it a lot harder. And so I think in terms of actual kind of ONI, you know, it's, uh, you know, not hanging around that much longer, hopefully, but we'll see. How about doing investigations virtually? Uh, have you had experience, uh, I mean, you know, trying to do depositions or even transcribed interviews? I mean, you could do them, right? But has that hampered uh, the Congress's ability to investigate? I mean, I, I think, yeah, doing investigation, doing interviews and depositions virtually uh, is very difficult. I, I haven't actually, <laughs> haven't done them in private practice, so um, I can't compare the two, but I know the Senate rules, um, you know, regarding your release of information, you know, giving them to attorney, you know, transmitting them to an attorney and a witness ahead of time to review and to have a copy of to do it was just all, all very, very difficult. And, you know, we were doing interviews where someone was just scrolling the document through on, on WebEx. Um, and it, it's just, you know, it was just silly. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, it can be done depending on the witness and what you're trying to elicit, but difficult interview, doing a difficult interview on WebEx, um, is, is not particularly effective. Although I think this is where Ashley's 
point is actually really, really important is, you know, if there's a, if there's a, you know, a witness who's in kind of LA or, you know, Seattle or kind of elsewhere, it's a lot, it's a lot easier than the, the, I mean, expense, you know, of actually uh, traveling here. <clears throat> so that's been an upside. Well, I see that we're at the end of our hour, and, and, and thank you very much. I just want to thank the panelists for an uh, excellent conversation. Anyone have any parting uh, words or thoughts uh, for our audience? Okay, well, if not, I think... Yeah. Well, my parting word is that I've just been really glad to see you all. I know that um, it's a really small bar with oversight and investigations, and it's been wonderful to be your colleagues at different times and see other people across the table. And we will continue to see each other very frequently, I'm sure, because this is not a huge group of people in this town that do this. Um, so it's always a pleasure to, to engage with you all. Yeah, I always love the opportunity to explain what it is I actually do uh, to people since it's uh, a very small universe who innately, <laughs> innately knows it. Yes, and thank you to folks that um, tuned in today. And thank you for the Federal Society for hosting us today. We really appreciate it. Um, and as Allison said, we look forward to seeing you again uh, in, in, in the near term. Great. Thanks, everyone. Thanks very much, everyone, for participating. I add my thanks to the thanks of the Federalist Society. And if any of our listeners have feedback or comments, we welcome comments at info at fed-soc.org. Thank you very much to our panelists for your time and expertise this afternoon. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.